thank you for joining us for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty with David Fowler, president of the Family Action Council of Tennessee. Every week, we are putting culture, politics, and law on a collision course with the truth of God's Word. And now, here's David. Welcome to today's episode of God, Law, and Liberty. And as always, I'm delighted to have you with me. And I think we're going to have a very interesting session and time together today that will help us better understand why things that seem so reasonable to us don't seem reasonable to people who seem intelligent. Now, before we get into today's episode, though, I want to give a quick announcement. On Saturday, August the 26th, in Kingsport, Tennessee, the Tri-Cities area, the upper northeast part of Tennessee, Johnson City, Bristol area, I will be uh, conducting a half-day seminar from 9 a.m. to noon at Concordia Lutheran Church on the topic of transgenderism and public policy. It will parallel greatly the new book that I've written, Transgenderism, Raising Ancient Issues Only the Ancient of Days Can Answer. And I hope you'll join me. It's free. You're welcome to come. We do ask that you register, if possible, to let us know how many people might be there so we can set up chairs and have coffee and appropriate things. I invite you to come. If you would like to come and can register, just send us an email at info at F-A-C-T-N dot org. That's info at F-A-C-T-N. And just let us know that you, you're registering for the transgenderism seminar in the Tri-Cities area on August the 26th. Now, I don't know if there are any great football games on, but we'll be done by noon. So feel free to come do your God thing before you do your uh, football thing on that Saturday. So anyway, the doors will open at 8.30. We'll start promptly at noon. There'll be plenty of opportunity for discussion and question and answers, and I hope that you'll join us. Now, with the show, as they say, what we've been doing the last few weeks is looking at the way non-Christian philosophers have tried to ground a legal system that could produce laws that ought to be obeyed that can withstand the playground bully's question, says who, as posed by the late Yale law professor Arthur Leff, whose law review article in 1979 we've been looking at. Last week, we focused on the need for a coherent and cohesive system of law that didn't produce arbitrary laws, such as we had for years, for decades actually, with abortion and its viability standard, and that we still have with abortion, because every state gets to vote on whether the person in the womb is a person under the law. And in one state, um, the person in the womb, the unborn, can be a person. And in other states, the unborn are not persons. So we still have arbitrary law. And we looked last week at Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas's interrogation of the U.S. Attorney General, who had said, at the first of the oral argument in the Dobbs case that the right to abortion is grounded in human autonomy. 
what Professor Left called the seriatim ingestion of God, so that each of us becomes a little God in our own cosmos with our own truth. But you'll recall, upon being pressed further by the justice, the Attorney General simply retreated to the proposition that the right was grounded in the fact that the Supreme Court has said for the last 50 years that there's a right to abortion. Now think about that. How much more solidly could you have your rights planted in midair than that? What the Attorney General for the United States was saying is we have a right because we said we have a right. To which, as we've learned over recent weeks, Professor Leff would say, says who? And the only answer could be because the Supreme Court said so. But when you think of that answer, it means that transcendent authority has been given to a majority of the justice on the court. The court has now become the unexamined and unexaminable evaluator of norms. And it's become our God. And are Christians okay with that? Apparently many are. We don't seem to resist it. We seem to to follow in its tracks. We, we cite Supreme Court precedents rather than making legal arguments, but I'm not happy with it. And I hope, I hope if you've been listening to me for any time, you're not either. But we got to that conversation about the need for a system that's not only can answer the question, why ought the law to be obeyed or why should this be the law, but, but the law needing to be cohesive and coherent and fit together through a statement that Leff made in the Law Review article, which is really about reason and logic as a ground for law. Here's what he said. One would think that a fully considered moral position, the product of deep and thorough intellectual activity, one that fits together in a fairly consistent whole, See, that's the part we went off on last week. Would deserve more respect than shallow, internally inconsistent ethical decisions. Alas, to think that would be to think wrong. Labor and logic have no necessary connection to ethical truth. But to be honest, that kind of thinking, resting on reason and logic, is rampant among Christians today in this particular way. As I said at the top of the episode, we can't understand why people don't understand the reasonableness of our views. For example, that boys cannot become transgendered women or become women. To us, that's just totally unreasonable. Yet the people who are making those arguments are not stupid, uneducated persons for the most part. They wouldn't prevail in federal district courts around the country if they were stupid. And it was obviously stupid. Something more is going on here. And that's what we need to begin to look at today. The problem Christians are running into, we would think that people would submit to reasonableness. But that belief about reason is unreasonable if God has not revealed themselves to them and there's still enmity between them, the seed of the serpent, 
in Genesis chapter 3 and God. Now, this is really important because I spoke with a pastor's wife this week who was very active in getting out voter guides and trying to get good people elected. And she had not really taken to heart what the scripture says in the Old Testament. And Paul repeats in Romans that no one seeks God. No one. And when the rubber hits the road, when a person's autonomy meets God's sovereignty over that place or that point of autonomy that is precious to the person, that person will turn against reason and even deny reason. So, for example, several years ago, I was on the floor of the state Senate and I was arguing for the defense of marriage statute that the legislature passed. And after the floor session was over, I was passing by the Oh, the, the room that they had for reporters there at Capitol Hill reporters. And one of the most liberal of all the reporters said to me, you know, Senator Fowler, I really like to listen to you argue. And I said, oh, really? She said, yeah, your your arguments are always so reasoned from point to point to point. And I said, really? And she said, no, I mean it. And I said, well, why don't you ever agree with me? And her answer was very profound and very real. She said, because your point sucks. In other words, it's not that your logic is bad. I just don't like where it leads. So I have to reject the logic of it. Now, what she was actually doing was rejecting the premise. But she didn't realize she was accepting my premise, which is what made the argument reasonable. But it led to a wrong conclusion. So she would reject my argument when she should have been saying, your argument is reasonable and logical, but your point is wrong because your premise is wrong. Now, I'm not saying, don't hear me, that we're, we're not to make reasoned arguments. But reasoned arguments do not, as left admitted, the person on the other side of our reasonable arguments don't necessarily lead people to ethical truth. Not when the truth is not their truth. I mean, look at left. He denies there's any God. And he admits that no one can say anything is truly and objectively true. But when he ended the article, which I read about three weeks ago, he said, we know Hitler and Paul Pot were evil. There is such a thing as evil. But he said, says who? You see, he would not reconsider the premise that the God of the Bible that he rejected as being real and existing might actually be real and exist. And, you know, to be honest, as I thought about today's episode, I realized as I was thinking about this, that if I took my own words and counsel more to heart, I would pray more about my relationship with those I interact with on matters of law and policy. Because it's only God that can change a heart, which then leads to a transformed mind, which then leads to an increasingly sanctified will. And I put too much confidence in reason. And I, I should know that that's not right because I've tried to reason with the Christians that I run around with in my policy circle about the need to consider using the common law. And I just don't make any progress when to me that approach 
is not just reasonable and logical, it's historically true, and it's reflected in our Supreme Court's precedents, and yet it just doesn't resonate with them. You see, so I should be praying more for them, praying to God to open their eyes, to allow the things that I say to resonate more with them. I'm believing that if I make the good argument for why they should practice policy and law the way I do, that they will just say, oh, well, that's reasonable. That sounds great. I understand that. Let's go do it. And they don't. So you see, I'm, I'm preaching to myself here. Anyway, I'm getting off the subject a little bit, but I do want to make a larger point. And one I don't think left as, as such a reasonable and logical thinker himself fully understood. And I didn't understand, and I'm not sure I still fully understand it, but I'm going to walk us through some of it today. And it's going to sound bizarre, but this is the point. Reason is less valued today than it was in 79 when Left wrote the article. And it's less valued than 100 years ago because of a fundamental change in the cosmology that consciously or subconsciously dominates our thinking, even that of Christians, even has dominated my own. It's a revolution in the way we see the world that goes beyond ethical or moral values. What I'm referring to is a revolution in our understanding of the nature of the world and the way it works. It's a cosmological revolution, and it began to take form in the 18th century. And over the course of the last 300 years, it has taught us to doubt our experience of the world. And as a result, has put our reason in the dock that you can't necessarily trust your reason. Experience may conflict with reason. It may conflict with your subjective understanding of what you're experiencing, which, if you think about it, is at the heart of transgenderism. Now, now let me explain this a bit, because... I think it will help us better understand why our reasonable arguments about kids not being sterilized by transgender procedures fall on so many deaf ears when it sounds reasonable to us. And, and for this part of today's episode, I want to commend to you a book by Carl Becker, B-E-C-K-E-R, entitled The Heavenly City of the 18th century philosophers. It's a short book. It's, I uh, think, a five by seven. I have a copy of it here. It's less than 200 pages. It's not technical. But it has really helped me understand that reason will continue towards non-reason in our culture. And reason will work less and less, become less effective in the policy and legal spheres, unless we begin to work toward restoring a biblical cosmology, which is the same thing that, as the progressives in the 18th century set to work to do, which was to replace the biblical cosmology 
on which everything in that society, including law, was based. Not perfectly, mind you, but but at least in principle. And Becker states in the book that it's taken several hundred years, but we have replaced that cosmology. In speaking of that world of the Middle Ages and into the Puritan Revolution, he says, the sign that modern thinking has been substituted for that cosmology is now fully accomplished, even though it's been a long time in the weaving. So we need to appreciate that if we're going to see a change in the direction of things, that it may take us a long time in coming to reweave a biblical cosmology into the thinking of people in our society and back into the law. This is a long-term project. Now, I want to say this, my opinion about the direction of things. If we continue to insist on relying on reasoning and reasoning alone, in my opinion about the directions of things, if we don't begin to restore a cosmology, a, a biblical cosmology, it's not just my opinion. It dawned on me, it is found in Romans 1. Paul tells us that as men lost their cosmological grounding, he speaks about the heavens, that the knowledge of God, the wrath of God is being revealed from the heavens. And the heavens no longer proclaimed to them or revealed to them the glory of God, and man ceased to give thanks to God for everything. He, he turned toward the earth, which is what happened with Nebuchadnezzar when he lost his reason. He became like the beast of the field. It was when he looked toward heaven again that his reason returned to him. And, and Romans tells us, Paul tells us there, that man became futile in his thinking. And here's what's scary. God eventually turned them over. He gave them up to what? In chapter 1, verse 20, Paul describes as a debased or reprobate or depraved mind. In other words, turning away from God is what the fool does, as the psalmist wrote. And it leads not just to foolishness, but persisted in without the intervention of God, to being given over to the kind of mind Paul described. A wrong view of the cosmos heads in only one direction, and acquiescing to that cosmology is to be carried along with it to its ends. Either severe but corrective discipline for those who Paul says are known by God or to their destruction. Personally, my friends, I think that we're being given over to unreason and futile thinking. That's what we're experiencing today. And corrective discipline from it is what we're going to find. And uh, those who do not know the Lord or are not known by God, well, in the words of Romans 1.27, they'll experience in their own persons the consequences, and it won't be pretty. We're seeing some of that now with some young people who have mutilated their bodies to to try to transition to a different gender. And they're coming forward to testify against transgender medicine. One of the young persons I read about this week on Fox News said, I'm now a perpetual 
medical patient. Now, let me come back to Becker and what he says happened to reason since the 18th century. First, though, just a bit about who he is. He was an atheist. He's now deceased. And he was one of the most influential historians in the 20th century. He was one of the leading proponents of what is called historical relativism, meaning history has no objective meaning or purpose. (laughs) Tell that to God, right? Of course, that historical relativism, the absence of objective meaning or purpose in history, is necessarily true within an evolutionary mindset because evolution removed from the cosmos any question of meaning or purpose. So what began to happen? And I'm taking this from Becker's book, and I'm beginning on page 20, if you have the most recent edition, where he points out that during the medieval period and going into the um, 18th century, the Christian man was trying to build a rational world by reconciling his experience with revealed truth. It was what R.C. Sproul has kind of called a correspondence view of truth, that we see things in the world, we see certain facts, and we begin to try to find a correspondence to what the Word of God would say to make sense of our world. Okay, And he said, succeeding generations, those beginning in the 18th centuries with the 18th century philosophers, began to examine the facts of just natural phenomenon. In other words, he says, there was no agency behind the facts. There was no God behind the facts. Things didn't happen because there was a God moving in history. And so they moved away from a rationalization of the facts to reveal truth, to a more careful and disinterested examination of the facts themselves. And he cites Galileo. Let me read you what he says. Galileo, for example, did not ask what Aristotle had said about falling bodies or whether it would be reasonable to suppose a 10-pound weight would fall to the ground more quickly than a 1-pound weight. He applied to this problem the scientific method. So, in other words, you you would reasonably think a 10-pound weight, because it's in your hands and it feels much heavier, it's going to hit the ground faster than the same ball that's just a, a pound, right? And Newton said, well, that may sound reasonable, but let's drop them. He said he dropped two weights, differing as 10 to 1 from the leaning tower, and noted the fact that both weights reached the ground at the same time. In such a world as this, he said, in effect, this is the way fallen bodies behave. If that is not possible in a rational world, in other words, that doesn't make sense. The heavier things should fall faster. He says, then the world we live in is not a rational one. Facts are now primary 
and what chiefly concern us. They are stubborn and they are irreducible. In other words, it's stubborn. That's a one pound ball and it's a 10 pound ball. And it's stubborn. The fact that I release them from the exact same point and they hit the ground at the exact same time. They're stubborn and irreducible, and we can't get around them. They may be in accord with reason. Let us hope that they are. But whether they are so or not is only a question of fact to be determined like any other. This subtle shift in the point of view was perhaps the most important event in the intellectual history of modern times. In, all, in other words, your own experience may be deceiving you. You may not be thinking about it correctly. He continues, the vision of man and his world as a neat and efficient machine designed by an intelligent author of the universe gradually faded away. Because you see, reason is now put in doubt, and maybe the machine behaves in some strange ways that a machine wouldn't do. It's an aberration, right? And he says, so professors of science cease to speak with assurance about laws of nature and were just content to pursue with unabated ardor, but without any teleological implications, whatever. What's the thing headed for? What's its purpose? Where's it going? Their business of observing and experimenting with the something which is the stuff of the universe, of measuring and mastering it. Now, here's what then really happened to change everything in our time. And it is this. Newton's physics began to dissolve, they began to understand, and this is where I'm going to quote now from Becker, the universe was said to be composed of atoms. And an atom is said to be composed of a nucleus around which electrons revolve in determinable orbits. You remember seeing the little pictures, you know, of the atom and the little things going around? He says, but experiments seem to show that an electron may, for reasons best known to itself, be moving in two orbits at the same time. To this point, Galileo's common sense method of noting the behavior of things, of sticking close to the observable facts, has brought us, it has at last presented us with a fact that common sense repudiates. That just can't work. It can't be going in two orbits at the same time. That doesn't compute. But that's what we're, we seem to be seeing, right? Now think about that. That's kind of like saying, wait a minute, God is one and three? He's three and one? Wait a minute. Wait a minute. That, that doesn't make, make sense. Now, what man decided to do was to say, ah, we find examples of this concept in the very understanding of the Trinity but because the knowledge of God and the triune nature of God was gone, jettisoned from the cosmos, so we just abandoned reason itself. And he says this, what can we do? Reason and logic cry out in pain, no doubt. 
But we've long since learned not to bother overmuch with reason and logic. Logic was formerly visualized as something outside of us, something existing independently, which, if we were willing, could take us by the hand and lead us into the paths of truth. We now suspect that it's something the mind has created to conceal its timidity and keep up its courage, a hocus-pocus designed to give formal validity to conclusions we're willing to accept if everybody else will, too. Now, let me, let me show you what effect this had on the law. And we're going to close here with this today. I'm now going to read from Gary North's final book, The Biblical Structure of History. And I'm looking at the uh, introduction. And this really struck me as a lawyer. But it relates to this indeterminacy principle that Becker was just talking about that science says this is no longer determinable. It's indeterminable. This this can't be happening, but yet we, we see it happening. Our experience is, is telling us something that's illogical. It doesn't, it doesn't fit, doesn't hold together, doesn't provide a continuity and a cohesion. Here's what was written by Roscoe Pound, the dean of the Harvard Law School from 1916 to 1937, when all of this scientific stuff is going on. And in his book, Contemporary Juristic Theory, he wrote this. Nothing has been so upsetting to political and juristic thinking as the growth of the idea of contingency in physics. See what happened in the natural observable scientific world he's saying is spilling over into the legal world. He explains it has taken away the analogy from which philosophers had reached the very idea of law. It was a deductive thing, you see. And now we've given up deductive thinking for inductive thinking. We look at all the facts and we used to try to think, well, let's put all these facts that we've induced into a biblical conception and figure out their meaning and their value and their purpose and their telos and all of that. And he says, and we've learned from inductive reasoning, you can't ever come to a conclusion of law. And now we've discovered there's an indeterminacy within the very atom itself in the physical nature of the world. So what does that do to the non-physical thinking part of the world? And he says, so it's taken away our very idea of law. It has deprived political and juristic thought of the pattern to which they had conceived of government and law as set up. Physics had been the rock on which they had built. Boy, isn't that a telling statement. It takes me my mind back, and some of those of you who listened for a while, to our discussion of 1 Corinthians chapter 3, our series on building blocks, where Paul says there is only one foundation that can be laid, and that foundation for everything is Jesus Christ. And he said you can build with wood or hay or straw or rubble or gold or silver. Each person has, has that with which they would build. But he said if you don't build rightly on that foundation, it will collapse. It will be burned up, even if you're saved. 
And my friends, it's time we begin the process of restoring a biblical cosmology in the thinking of the people in our pews, our Christian friends, our neighbors, and then we can begin to have it make sense in law. And that's what I'm trying to do. If any of you would like to know what that that trying to restore it in law looks like, I've just filed with the Sixth Circuit uh, Court of Appeals a, a brief trying to get the court to understand transgenderism in terms of what it means to be a person. So email us and say, hey, I'm in the Tri-Cities area. I want to come to the seminar August the 26th. Or email us if you'd like a copy of the brief, and we will send you a link to it. So thank you for joining me, and we'll pick back up again next week on the next episode of God, Law, and Liberty. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. God, Law, and Liberty is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, please visit us at www.facttennessee.org. That's F-A-C-Tennessee.org. And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Fact Tennessee.